Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in the 19th chapter, and we begin this morning at the second half of verse 16, and reading to the end of the chapter. And once again, I invite you to turn in God's Word and follow along as I read. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let us not tear it, they said to one another. Let us decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was, it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, 
Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Herein ends the reading of God's word to us, This day, may all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. In our expositional walk through the gospel according to John, we have providentially arrived on this World Communion Sunday at the crucifixion of Christ. How fitting That is, since the sacrament of the Lord's table is to regularly remind us of the atoning work of Christ at Calvary. We have pointed out on numerous occasions that the gospel writers all expend an abundance of ink on the closing days of Jesus' earthly life because they all understood the eternal significance of what Christ accomplishes here. To give short shrift to this hour of Christ's glorification is to miss the primary reason for the Incarnation. And so we come to the moment in history past when Christ drinks the cup that the Father has given to him to drink, and we need to pay close attention to it. John tells us that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Even though Pilate was engaged in what we would describe as a political battle with the Jewish leadership over the guilt or innocence of Jesus, he finally accedes to their demands to crucify Jesus when they challenge his loyalty to Caesar. But we need to take note of what they say in response to Pilate's question of challenge. Shall I crucify your king? And the answer he receives from them is, We have no king but Caesar. Now we have spoken of the irony that John highlights throughout his gospel, and there may be none so great as this moment. For the Jews in their Passover liturgy, of which they were in the midst, Make use of a prayer in the greater halal that says this, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Beside thee we have no king, redeemer, or savior, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in every time of distress or trouble. We have no king but thee. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king. But Caesar. And it is at this point that Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. 
But as we pointed out last week, the Jews could not be the ones to carry out the execution. And so the Roman guard assigned to the duty of public executions affix a crossbeam to Jesus and force him to carry it to Golgotha's hill. And then John simply says, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. In his academic paper on honor and shame in the Johannan literature, Catholic scholar Jerome Nehray goes into some detail as to the humiliation that crucifixion afforded in a culture where honor was a most important value. This was a punishment that was reserved for slaves and prisoners of war and revolutionaries. For anyone else to be crucified would require an edict from the emperor in Rome. But as Nehre considers it, he points to the progressive humiliation that was all part of the design behind this form of capital punishment. The public trial served as a means of first degrading the status of the accused. It labeled them as a shameful person. The flogging that soon followed was usually to the person's front and their back after they had been stripped of all their clothing. Many times the accused befouled themselves by losing control of their bodily functions. And they were then forced to carry their own means of execution to the ground where they would soon die. Their personal belongings, their personal property was confiscated, typically their clothing, shaming them even further. And the accused was rendered powerless over their own bodily movement as their arms and legs were restrained on the cross either by ropes or else they suffered mutilation by being nailed to the cross. Golgotha was located near a road which afforded even greater humiliation as those passing by engaged in ridiculing and mocking the condemned whose bodies were sometimes attached to the cross in strange and grotesque configurations which only added to the mockery that was heaped upon them. Death by crucifixion was often slow and protracted. Ultimately, they were deprived of life and thus the possibility of gaining any satisfaction or vengeance against their accusers and their tormentors. In many cases, victims were denied honorable burial and their corpses were left on display and devoured by vultures and scavenger animals. So when Jesus was crucified between two criminals, it was designed to magnify his humiliation and to say to the viewing public that he was no king, that he had no honor, that he was despised and shamed for a reason. And yet Pilate, who was engaged in a shame and honor contest of his own with these Jewish leaders, pokes them in the eye with a placard that he affixes to the cross of Christ that states Christ's crime, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
And when the Jewish elite were humiliated by this declaration, they demanded that it be changed to increase the shame of Christ. But Pilate had the final word by refusing to alter what he had written. Now friends, as the world looks upon this spectacle of horror, all they see is humiliation. All they see is defeat and failure. By the world standards, Jesus is no victor, but is the epitome of a victim, and a colossal one at that. Therefore, Paul declares that for the Jews, a crucified Christ is a stumbling block, and for the Gentiles, it is foolishness. But for the disciples of Christ, For those who came to know that Christ conquered death in the grave, they began to understand that in the cross of Christ, God was engaged in a spiritual rescue mission that was not a colossal failure, but was a brilliant act of redemptive love that had the power to make all things new. And as their understanding of Christ's atoning work grew deeper, they began to see the truth of what Jesus had declared earlier in his ministry when he spoke about the glory of the cross. As his disciples scoured the scriptures, they began to see more and more clearly that God had long ago spoken of this moment in redemptive history through the signs and shadows of the first Passover and then through the prophets like Isaiah that we read a moment ago and the psalmist and the law of Moses and the special acts of worship, such as the Day of Atonement, and they found references that fit so perfectly with what Jesus said and did that there was no mistaking the fact that Jesus knew when he would lay down his life and why his enemies would seek his death and how they would execute him and where it would take place. And as the understanding of these disciples grew, the glory of what God had accomplished through Christ began to eclipse the perceived humiliation of the darkness of that day and they began to see the overwhelming glory that was to be associated with the cross of Christ. Now the portrayal that John offers of the crucifixion is in his own words somewhat understated. Not because the agony of the cross was not extreme in his estimation, because it was. But throughout his account of Jesus' ministry, he has repeatedly shown Jesus to be the one in charge. The miraculous signs that he records, the verbal challenges put to Jesus by the religious elite, the attempts made upon Christ's life, his interactions with everyday people, his words of teaching and leadership with the twelve. There is not a moment in John's gospel when Jesus is not in control of all that's taking place. But because the original audience of John's gospel does not need to be told how awful is the cross and the humiliation attached to it, John focuses instead upon the fact that from before the beginning of time, the Son of God has known that this moment of redemption would be required of him, and he never wavered in accomplishing this task. And we find this in the final scene, in verses 28 through 30. 
over the several hours of Christ's suffering, when we would expect him to be delirious with pain, and he is, he is also still in control by looking after his mother's welfare, as well as attending to the smallest detail of scriptural scriptural fulfillment by seeking something to drink. But as that final task is finished, John says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And what Jesus declares here is a single word, to die. It means completed, or finished, or fulfilled accomplished. Less than 24 hours before, Jesus prayed to his Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now with the most difficult task perfectly completed, Jesus makes a final and definitive pronouncement that the mission that the Father gave to him has been accomplished. And with nothing more to do, Jesus does what he declared earlier in his ministry. He lays down his life. Do you remember when he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, while all of this is taking place, the religious leaders are continuing to scheme. They are aware that the law considered anyone hung from a tree to be accursed by God, but they also knew that to leave a corpse hanging from the tree overnight was to desecrate the land. Now, the Romans had no sensibilities in this regard, could not have cared about such things. Their practice was to leave the corpse past death, waiting for the vultures to take their share and reinforcing the message that you don't want to mess with Rome. And so the religious authorities go to Pilate, ask that he expedite the death of Christ by sending a soldier to break the legs of the crucified. To do so resulted in a person's inability to push themselves up far enough to grab one more agonized breath. But when the soldiers arrived to carry out the task, they broke the legs of the two thieves, but they discovered that Christ was already dead. Now this was surprising because those who were crucified could suffer for days. For Christ to be dead after only hours gives indication that what Jesus declared was true, that he had the power to lay down his life. And as everyone will soon see, he also has the power to take it up again. The significant thing about the soldiers not breaking Christ's legs was another detail that pointed to the fact that he was the Passover lamb. Exodus 12.46 says of the Passover lamb, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. But to be doubly sure that Jesus was dead, one of the soldiers lances Jesus' side. And John 
testifies that from this wound flowed a mixture of blood and water. I will not take time this morning to examine the variety of opinions that surround that point, which are completely inconclusive, but offer the point that what this shows to John's readers, particularly his first audience, is that Jesus was fully human. You see, by the time that John writes his gospel, there were docetic influences already at work, arguing that Jesus was not truly human, but that he only seemed to be human. That God had pulled something of a divine trick upon humanity by means of a cosmic illusion. Such heretical arguments required real proof. And this piercing of Jesus' side demonstrated that what John declared at the beginning of his gospel was absolutely true. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it would have been customary for such criminals to be relegated to unmarked and common graves, But Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, whom John identifies as a fearful and intimidated disciple of Christ, steps forward and he asks Pilate for permission to take control of Jesus' body. And whilst Pilate certainly did not need to accede to the request, it may have been that his earlier contentious interactions with the high priest and the other leaders motivated him to surrender the body to one of their own who was clearly not in step with them and thus offer this final snub to the high priest and others. Whatever the rationale, Joseph is then joined by Nicodemus who has also come to a point of conviction concerning Jesus as being Messiah. And together these men, perhaps aided by servants, bring the traditional elements of a Jewish burial, although they are working against the clock to complete the process before the beginning of this special Sabbath. But by means of linen cloth and nearly 75 pounds of spices, they wrap the body of Jesus as quickly as possible, not nearly as satisfied with their work as they would like to be, which will prompt the women to return in another day to complete the task but sufficiently so that they will be able to rest and know that while they could not dissuade their leaders from engaging in this heinous act, they did what they could to provide Jesus with a proper burial. While the Jewish leaders had refused to enter Pilate's hall and thus be defiled, such that they would have to go through a ritual to be made clean in order to participate further in their Feast of Unleavened Bread, Joseph and Nicodemus have most probably touched the dead body of Jesus and defiled themselves for the remainder of their feast. And their action may have established a line of demarcation between themselves and the Jewish elite that became so clear that Nicodemus, who once visited Jesus under the cover of darkness, would never again have any fear of being associated with Christ in broad daylight. 
Now I submit to you today that this is the question that every person needs to answer. Am I ashamed of Christ because of his humiliation? Do I see in the cross a foolishness of which I want no part? Jesus says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Am I willing to suffer for the sake of his name? Not am I willing to suffer. People of every theological persuasion or no theological persuasion have had to suffer. But am I willing to suffer for the sake of his name? Am I willing to suffer because I am associated with him? Or do I, do I perceive the glory that God gains through the cross? Do I see the wisdom of what God did there such that Christ's death serves as an eternal payment for my sin? Do I see the glory that awaits all those who died as self in order that they might live for Christ? In writing to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul states, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By means of the humiliation and foolishness of the cross, Jesus Christ has been exalted above all things, and he alone is Lord. And to all those who come to him in faith alone, he promises to share his glory with them. And when we all gather next time together, we will begin to see just how pleased the Father is with the atoning work of the Son. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me and pray for a moment this morning.